Hi, I'm Michael Goff, Principal Product Marketing for Software Monetization here at Revenera. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded by Revulinix, which is now a part of Revenera. Rest assured that while the names may have changed, the conversations are still meaningful and relevant. Our guests have some great insights to share, so stay tuned. Welcome to episode number two of the Piracy Impact podcast from Revulinics, where we bring you conversations with leaders in the world of software license compliance. I'm your host, Michael Goff, and I'm here with Jason Swan. Jason, episode two. How do we, we get here? I know. Episode two, we're off and running. This is a great conversation we had with Gary Hargreaves, uh, chief legal officer down at CNC. Tell me about that trip. Yeah, you know, Gary and I go back uh, a number of years now. We took the ride down to their corporate headquarters, a great little facility down at Tallinn, Connecticut, you know, very eco-friendly, uh, small family business, got a great little vibe about it. You know, Gary's a very well-respected industry veteran in the cam space, got to talk about his process. We got to talk about his program, uh, maturity model, some escalation. I mean, a really well-rounded discussion about an individual really who's grown up within the compliance field right before our eyes. Yeah, and he's got an interesting journey that he tells us about, so uh, let's get right to it. Welcome to Piracy Impact. I am your host, Jason Swan, alongside my colleague, Michael Goff. And today, we are welcomed by Gary Hargreaves, the Chief Legal Officer from CNC Software down in Tallinn, Connecticut. How are you doing today, Gary? Doing great, thanks. So, Gary, if you don't mind, why don't you give us a little background on what CNC Software does and what your role is within the organization? Okay. We are a CAD-CAM software developer. Uh, we've been in business since the early 80s, so we were there right at the beginning of the movement to PCs and CAD-CAM uh, and have primarily been a CAM vendor over a CAD-CAM vendor uh, for all of these years, um, selling through a direct reseller channel uh, globally. We are in approximately 80 countries now. Uh, selling our software. It's translated into about 15 languages. Um, we have delivered in the neighborhood of 270,000 seats of software around the wow. world in that time period. Um, and with that, that puts us as from a seat count as an industry leader in the uh, camp space. Great. And you've been here a couple of years. A few years, <laughs> right? yes. Uh, I've been here since 92. Uh, when I started, uh, I was their first international sales manager developing the channel outside of North America. And how many different roles have you had in the company since 92? Um, went from international sales manager to global sales manager, uh, then to manager of business development, uh, which then has evolved into the chief legal officer most recently. Okay. And what has your experience been on the licensing side of these 270,000 seats of software? Um, it, it's been interesting as we've got, moved along. We've changed our, our licensing model a little bit. We do sell a perpetual model at this point um, as, as we market our product. We've worked through several different vendors for licensing. We're in the process right now of shifting to software licensing, um, which has been 
a it, it's a relatively long term process that we've been doing mm-hmm. for about four years now. Um, and of course, along the way, then you have the people who are using your product without licenses, which is uh, something we've been working on for a while too. How long do you think you've been as an organization? I don't want to say interested in yep. that non-compliance, but how long has it been a conversation at the executive table? We started doing something about it back in around 2000. Uh, then it was um, not not a strong topic of conversation, but it was more as we tripped over an occasional case, we would try to get them compliant. Um, we signed on with the uh, uh, business software alliance back then to get their help mm-hmm. um, a, as we moved through. But still, it, w- it never was in the first maybe even 10 years a strong push from, sure. from our side. And was that just here at corporate or did your reseller community have a perspective on it as well? Um, yeah, we, we did um, You know, work it through the resellers. They weren't thrilled with the process at that point in time, mainly because it took too long. Um, and it was just getting from discovering someone to actually getting compliance was difficult when you really didn't have hard evidence. So you mentioned tripping over yep. piracy. What did that look like? Um, it, it would be a, um, a reseller would be in to visit um, a company and they that he had sold to. They wouldn't necessarily let him into the room where... <laughs> programming was going on um you know so that kind of raises a little bit of suspicion there that um you know maybe they're using more than we have they've got a lot of machine tools in the shop for the two seats they bought from us those those kind of things um or they would call and they you know call to make an appointment we're fine we don't need anything we're we're good you know and salesmen are friends with competitive salesmen and they kick accounts around and it's like everybody was getting the same story from this company. So they didn't necessarily buy from anyone. And resellers are very in tune with the customer base. Absolutely. They're doing tech support. They've got user groups and they're doing training. And Mm -hmm. typically all of that has to funnel through the same organization and the same people. Correct. So if you've got an overabundance of tech support calls and yep. very limited licenses, mm-hmm. and now you won't let me walk into a certain wing of the of the building, yeah, it doesn't take a rocket yep. scientist to figure out maybe something's going on down there. Yeah, the other the other piece we would see all the time, and we still do, is at trade shows, and somebody comes up and wants to buy a manual, <laughs> you know, and let me take your name and information. We'll get back to you. No, I, I've got the cash. I just want to buy that book that's on your desk. There. Like, <laughs> I want that specific no. one. No. Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's almost always somebody who's. Uh, using unlicensed software. So was there a, um, a moment that um, kind of led to you getting more serious as an organization around noncompliance? It, it was. Um, it started to pick up. We started to get more direct complaints, um, usually from the employee that had just been fired. Um, that's almost always the way they, sure. they're angry. Yep. They, and then they want to complain about their, their company to somebody, that type of thing. Um, so we definitely started to take a more serious attitude toward uh, towards it. And then what would your perspective be on how compliance is run today, maybe versus how when you started in those early days? Like how was the program and 
the executive buy-in, even if there was executive buy-in early on? Like, how did you sell it? Um, I mean, there's definite buy-in these days. Um, We we have a small team here uh, managing the compliance, and it was easy to add that additional body um, when the revenue stream was there and everybody saw what the process was um, and how how things were going with that. The process is incredibly easier today than it has been sure. in the past. Um, I mean, when, when you've got evidence in your hand, it's it's so much easier to to get somebody to become compliant. Because were you even able to measure back then when you were just sort of getting whistleblower reports and tripping over it? Like, were you able to really scope the size of? Not really. It, it, it was difficult. Um, we didn't have a way in our own database of marking someone that was non-compliant. So that when an order came in, um, we could tag it against that. Yep. Sure. Um, you know, and now now we do. As soon as we get something from, uh, you know, pretty much from y- you guys that says, here here's a, here's some non-compliance issues. You know, here's how many times they've used the software. Um, we immediately will create an entry in our database, and we've got a little skull and crossbones that we just throw up on the screen now. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so, and this is something the reseller sees. So when the reseller types in that company's name, they know, and it's got a little red shield on it, and that tells them that this is something, it's under investigation, and they cannot place an order for this company. Okay, so you've gone to the electronic CRM level yep. to say anybody that's out there that gets maybe a phone call Mm -hmm. and says, I want to buy something really fast. And they go and run to the CRM to see, hey, maybe I want to quote this, maybe I don't. Sees the skull and crossbones. Mm -hmm. Now they know that you're actually not going to take the order, even if they run out and close it without having a conversation with corporate. Yes. yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. We have a lot of shared territories between resellers. So we need the other reseller to know that, he can't sell to this person sure. either because typically somebody who's non-compliant, they'll shop around till they find somebody who will take their order. Absolutely. I think that speaks to the value of your reseller network too mm-hmm. and their credibility and yep. integrity. Um, so if you don't mind, let's back up just yeah. for two seconds because you mentioned, you know, in 2000, kind of, um, you know, partnering with the BSA mm-hmm. and, and, you know, kind of getting in a position to, to um, have a strategy to thwart this sort of behavior. Yep. Um, there had to have been a larger conversation here as a company to say, what are we willing to do? Mm-hmm. Are we willing to invest in it? What opportunity do we think is there? You can yeah. size up the market, as, as kind of Michael saying. Was there any internal pushback on that? And, or if there was, how did you overcome it? Um, the, a little of the internal pushback was with existing customers. And there was a fear that um, when we found an existing customer who was using extra seats of software, um, that they would just walk away from us completely and go buy somebody else's software. Okay. Uh, that has proven not to be true. And it's, it's, it's still, it amazes the resellers and a lot of people that when we do convert someone, they become happy customers and they continue to pay maintenance to keep it updated. And they, and they finally see the value in what the reseller can bring to them from a training and a support standpoint and, and everything else. Yeah, because that's a huge myth that we hear all the time yep. about, well, they're going to find a replacement. Mm-hmm. They chose you for a reason. Yes. And if they've been using you for any amount of time, they're sort of locked in. Yes. 
and they know what to expect. They're invested in yeah. it. Yep. And, and it's probably close to 70% of the people that are infringing our existing customers. Interesting. Um, so that was one objection was executive staff maybe had a fear that if we approach them in any sort of aggressive manner, mm -hmm. they would just drop us, go another direction, and now you'd have a revenue loss. Right. right. Any other objections that come to mind from um, 18, 19 years ago? Other, other than the time required to do it and recovering the costs of the program, yeah. um, that was really... That was really about it. And as long as, um, you know, we could demonstrate that we were bringing in more than we were paying out, then, then people were happy. So that's kind of the internal CNC viewpoint. What about the resellers? Did you have to target maybe a um, executive staff or if you've got any specialized program for the top producing resellers? Was there any dialogue with any of those folks? We, we <clears throat> definitely started slowly and we picked specific territories so we could grow, um, you know, where we are a U.S.-based company. So we said, let's do the United States first. You know, and we understand those laws better than sure. other places. So let's try that here for a year, see how it's going, and then look to the, to the companies that are working with us on that as to where we should grow next. Where do they see the largest infringements and that type of thing. Um, and so it's just a, a slow, cautious growth from that standpoint. Um, and, and that seemed to work. And how many resellers are now benefiting from the program globally? Um, last year, it was about 45 resellers that had non-compliant customers that we converted. And what percentage of that of overall resellers in the program is it a healthy percentage or are those the ones that drive a majority of the revenue? That's that's probably, <laughs> yeah, that, that is maybe 40% of the channel, something like that, 35, 40% okay. of the channel at this point. There, there are some areas that just due to politics and everything else, everybody stays away from at this point. Sure. Um, but, uh, and, and there are some other areas that have much lower piracy and the resellers have figured out how to do it themselves. So we never see any of that. Okay. Um, okay. So now let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned this kind of infrastructure you've built. Mm -hmm. So just give us a little more color on, you mentioned the CRM2, the Skull and Crossbones. You yep. obviously have dedicated headcount, you had mentioned. Yep. But how did you kind of build the program over the coming years to where you are today? Okay. Um, yeah, we, again, it was always somebody's part-time job um, up until, oh, about six or so years ago. Um, at, at that point, we signed on with Revulytics and started working that. Um, I managed the program for the first four months, and by the second month, it's like, I can't do the rest of the stuff I do, <laughs> uh, because this is a full-time job, you know, and just at that point, looking at the huge increase in non-compliant customers that we, we were actually getting, um, it was it was easy to have management convinced that we need a full-time person doing sure. this. And we put that person on, and and she managed it for about five years. Um, I'm I'm in and out a little bit, but it allowed me to focus on on other things. And and then again, it, it grew to the point where, okay, there are things that are we think could be slipping through the cracks. We're not having the time to go back and look at the people who infringed in the past for the re-infringers, which is definitely an issue that we still, you know, 
once a pirate, always a pirate. Is, yeah. Uh, you know, and so, you know, so once they figure they're out of the spotlight, they may start to bring in some seats again and stuff like that. So we <laughs> and we've had people three times we've caught. That's um, amazing. Do you find that that's a regional thing or is that really company by company? Um, it probably is regional. Think yeah. thinking about it. Um, I mean, in the U.S., the majority of our infringements are West Coast. Um, and, and I think that's where most of our repeat offenders are. Interesting. Um, in that area. Any particular reason why you think that is? Like why someone would be a repeat offender? I mean, you've obviously engaged them. Yeah. You've exchanged some forensic information that yep. you have about the situation. Right. They've agreed with you. Yep. They've settled the case. Yep. Now, as you've mentioned, they've waited some time period to... Assume you're no longer looking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, it's weird that, um, you know, they, they do that. Um, they, there was some, um, some of the cracks you could download online would tell you how you could circumvent being caught kind of thing. Okay. Um, and that we saw, definitely saw a drop in infringements. Yep. For, I think it was in 2017. Uh, but then it's picked back up again. So either people are ignoring that or that information isn't in the cracks any longer. I'm, yep. I'm not sure. Um, we've gotten smarter with our security too. Yep. Um, <clears throat> in doing that, um, what is the balance internally of security versus piracy? Because there is a, a little bit of a I want to say conflict, but a school of thought maybe. Oh, there definitely is. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, we knew um, back even in the early 2000s, that if it took us four months to get in and test some new level of security, it would take four months for it to be cracked. Okay. And it was very linear that way. So it's like, how much time do you want to spend doing this versus how much time? And then as the technology changes where we're still using, you know, the, the hard devices to plug in for security, um, we would have to upgrade that to a new piece of hardware and then swap out everybody in the field, which is a multi-million dollar cost sure. of doing this, which we couldn't pass on to our customers. So it's like, do we spend that money or do we live with the infringements we're getting right now and try the approach of catching yeah. them that way? And that's that's where the decision went was because just the you know, that multi-million dollar cost was just to buy the hardware devices, never mind ship them, deliver them. Oh, yeah. All of it's that. It's a heavy burden. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we hear a lot from software vendors that we talk to that there is a fine line here of, you know, the educational institutions that mm -hmm. you know may have uh, legitimate licenses with you or not. Yep. Uh, it's obviously a heavily pirated uh, area of most people's businesses, the students that are out there. Mm -hmm. But some people feel like that's a bit of a freemium model, too, that... We're not going to worry about them cracking it. They like our technology. They're learning our technology. And hopefully when they get out of university, they'll go to an institution, recommend our tool, buy it legitimately, et cetera. And if you build too many uh, security walls, that that population then won't have access to mm -hmm. your software. So I'm always interested in the perspective of how internally it's, do we build more security? Do we you know, build enough that we're being protective, but not too much, as you're saying, that yep. there's a heavy cost yep. to get in. And then we deal with the noncompliance as it comes. Yep. yep. And because the software licensing we're migrating toward is newer technology than what we're using on the hardware side, the security is definitely better there. Sure. So once we can get the hardware security out of the software, that 
tightens us up again. Okay. Um, you know, to to do a little bit there, and we've had some interesting discussions about education as, as well, and we see more infringements outside of the U.S. in the educational market than inside the U.S. But there was a discussion at one point is, should we go after them? And, and the decision was, we should, because we don't want to set the expectation at a student level that piracy is okay. Yeah, sure. You know, so so we definitely pursue the educational institutions um, and, and just say, hey, you know, you guys need to rectify the situation. Sure. Um, and that's an interesting response, too, because we've done research, you know, in our uh, aggregate data to see how many of the top 100 engineering schools or universities have pirated software. Mm-hmm. And the percentage is high, like 80%. Yep. You know, engineering schools, I think, top 50 engineering schools, it was like 100%. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing is, I know at some of those engineering schools, there's a server they can go to, those students, and download licensed copies yep. for their educational purposes. And yet they're still downloading cracks. Yeah. So yeah. I think you are right to set that tone and yeah. set those expectations early. I had a conversation with an instructor years ago. I believe it was in Singapore. And he was, he said he was very proud to tell me that he was giving cracks to the students <laughs> after they finished the course to go out and continue learning the product so they could be, you know, a, a good person and, you know, and, he thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah. And it's like... Increases okay. your opportunity to yeah. get a job. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel the program is going to evolve? Have you had any, um, I guess, discussions internally or plans internally about what might be next? Or do you feel like you're in a pretty good place with your entire ecosystem? It... It seems like it's running pretty smoothly now. I mean, we've made some changes in the past year um, about when when things are escalated. And, and that was, now that we're doing it this way, we could see, looking back, that definitely was a gap because before we, we got to a point where they'd received the letters, they've been called, and things just weren't working. And, and then it's like, okay, how much more is it going to cost us to pursue this mm-hmm. one seat or two seats or something like that. And, and now that we're, we have that next step of escalation to an attorney who then starts the process, we've got an incredibly high success rate on those rare cases when it gets to that point. Sure. And, and so it, it all seems to be running pretty smoothly right now. Excellent. And you've been doing this a long time now. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular stories that stick out that uh, were surprising or funny or <laughs> I'm it's, sure you've seen a lot. Head scratching. Head scratching. It's, it's interesting and and they're so often the same. You know, when when you have that person that calls you screaming and he's belligerent and I'm not doing this and I'm gonna sue, you know he's guilty. A hundred percent of the time. We have never had anybody call in with that attitude and they were legit. Um and, and so it's a lot of the same questions. There's always a couple of oddities. Uh, there was one we had four or five years ago that admitted to doing it in writing, but threatened us that if we pursued this, he would hack into our internal networks and, and totally disrupt our business um, and and that you know and here's my credentials to prove why I can do this. 
Uh, so it's, it's that's a crazy one. Yeah, yeah that's, I that's think a that's one of the craziest we've heard <laughs> so far. That's a crazy one. Um, um, one of our uh, analysts that are doing this have gotten calls from ex-wives that are very angry with the settlement and want to complain and tell what their husband is ex-husband is doing at his company. Oh my wow. goodness! That's a whistleblower. <laughs> That's next level population whistleblower. we have not heard from. Yeah. Wow! Like, yeah. I, I think she's had two of those. Wow! But uh, that is amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, how do you handle that call? I guess you just take the information. Thank yep. you for the thank you very call much. And we'll see what we can do. You know, and stuff like that. We'll put in the file. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. I certainly appreciate you taking some time today, Gary. Yep, thank you. Uh, and joining Piracy Impact. Uh, and inviting us down. And inviting us down. Yes, we are uh, on campus here in Tallinn, Connecticut, in this beautiful facility you have. But his name is Gary Hargreaves. He is the Chief Legal Officer at CNC Software, the producers of Mastercam Technology. Thank you for joining us, and have a nice day. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. This has been episode number two of the Piracy Impact podcast from Revulytics with your hosts, Jason Swan, and me, Michael Goff. Special thanks to Gary Hargreaves of CNC Software for joining us today, and thank you for listening. We appreciate you subscribing to and rating this podcast wherever you listen. Adding a rating and review helps other software license compliance professionals find our podcast. You can also continue the conversation on social media. Please follow us on Twitter, at Revulytics, and share your comments and questions with hashtag PiracyImpact. You can also learn more about Revulytics and how we've supported customers' compliance programs generate more than $2.4 billion in new license revenue since 2010 at www.revulytics.com. Hi, this is Michael Goff again. Thank you for listening. And as a reminder, this podcast was recorded by Revulytics, which is now a part of Revenera. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed today or software monetization in general, please reach out to us at www.revenera.com.